Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Music as we know it would look a lot different and less colorful without the contributions of George Clinton. From his early musical beginnings in doo-wop and as a songwriter at Motown, the hugely prolific Clinton went on to form the band's Parliament and Funkadelic, two of the most important groups of the 1970s. With Clinton at the helm of their mothership, they uprooted funk from its earthly origins, sending it into outer space. Having made P-Funk a household name, Clinton went on to build an impressive solo discography, all the while inspiring a legion of West Coast rap artists. As part of the 2015 Red Bull Music Academy Festival in New York, Clinton sat down on the lecture couch with host Jeff Mao for a rare, intimate chat about his momentous life and career. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. George Clinton. How y'all doing? Whoa. How are you doing? I'm fine. I love being in New York, especially Brooklyn. Yeah. This bring back old memories from the 50s when doo-wop was happening. Oh, yeah. The Fort Greene projects. We used to come over here and doo-wop our ass off. <laughs> You'd make the trek over here from Newark or uh, Yeah, we used to take Plainfield. That, say it again? From Newark or Plainfield? Yeah, from Newark. From Newark. We used to take the, one, take the 118 to public service and then the train right on over here. I want, I want to ask you, just because obviously we're going to talk about Parliament Funkadelic, we're going to talk about the Parliaments, we're going to talk about all these classic recordings, but why do you think it is that you've been able to enjoy such great longevity? I mean, it's, it's really, it's not just about those recordings, it's about things you're, you've done recently as well. It's probably paying attention to the, the next youngest ones behind us. If you pay attention to the ones that's getting ready to kick you out, you know, if you can pay attention to them, you'll learn what's getting ready to happen. Yeah. So you can stay there. You can't hate on them, because the minute you hate on them, you actually make them more popular. So I used to take the, the example of anything parents hate or old musicians hate, that's the next shit. <laughs> <laughs> How do you resist that urge to, uh, I guess, be jaded? I mean, you know, I, I, I talk to people who are music fans who are, you know, younger than me, and they sound so jaded already. You, you can't be corny. And you're corny if you start hating on them. You know, I just keep that in my mind so I feel young just by using the word corny. <laughs> you know, so I just don't want to be that in the eyes of the younger kids, not my peers, because they're getting old like me. You know, so if I stay down with the one that's coming up next, a matter of fact, I look for my great-grandkids to tell me what's on YouTube, what's happening. That's how I can find out about a Chief Keef. That's that shit I don't like. That's that shit I don't like. 
you know, it, it keep you up on shit that I ordinarily would be hating on and laughing at. But once I get past it, I actually see what well, that sounds just like what we were doing when we were saying, shit, goddamn, get off your ass and jam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody you worked with recently, uh, Kendrick Lamar. How did that I come I told into everybody he was getting ready to drop that doo-doo. <laughs> Nobody didn't believe me. And I didn't hear but one record by him. But the shit he was talking, as if you write songs about that, you gonna be that's gonna be the shit, and he did a whole album full of it. I love everything on that album. And I'm really proud to be a part of it, you know. And matter of fact, he just did one with me on my album, and it's he's the one right now. You remind me of when Park. He reminded me when Park was with Digital Underground and was making that change. You can see it or feel it in him. You can't put no interpretation on it. I can't in words, but they use a, a term nowadays, do you feel me? Can you feel me? Well, all you can do is feel him. And I feel the, the positiveness in him. I have no idea how to explain what he's talking about, but he just feel good. You know, and if your intentions is correct, that's all that matters. Were you guys together physically in the room working together? Yes, I mean, right. we, yes. Um, he came to Tallahassee out in the country and hung out, you know, which I thought somebody his young, that would be pretty boring. Yeah. You know, but he came and hung out and engaged in conversations that he had no business even knowing anything about. <laughs> but he's evidently been talking to some people that kept him up on things. Or at least have some other kind of interpretation from other than what he's getting right in his environment. Plus, he got that, too. He got street. But he definitely got a lot of information that didn't come from his era. So he's kind of an old soul, in a way. Old soul, but he's working in a futuristic way. Yeah. You know, he's putting his own things together. Whatever the information he's using, he's coming up with his own, his own thing. Did he explain the concept of the song uh, that was released on... on I wouldn't Zoom even try. I just felt, like I said, I could feel him. You know, just the things that he was talking about doing. A lot of people say, we're going to be doing the funk. We want to save the funk. We want to be part of the funk. And that's cool. But the shit he was talking about, if you say that or, you know, just certain words, like I said, I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but I could feel that his intentions was positive. Yeah. And my not understanding was probably my age difference. I'll probably learn the slang later. But I can feel that what he was saying was symbolic to the same things we were saying in an abstract way in 68, 69. We was intentionally, plus we had help. We was high as hell. <laughs> you know, so yeah, we, we was out there. But he's, whatever his vibe is, he's out there in that same space. Yeah. So you once posed the question, what is soul? What is soul? Right. I don't know. Go ahead, Thank- brother. <laughs> and he's from the vanilla suburbs. <laughs> he, he know what it is. You got the right answer, though. A so. ring around your bathtub. <laughs> A joint rolling toilet paper. So 
Whoa. Chitlin' Foo Young. That's, damn, you listened real good, didn't you? <laughs> so if that's soul, what is funk? Funk is anything it need to be to save your life at that time. In other words, do the best you can and then funk it. Once you've done the best you can in any situation, ain't nothing else you can do. So you got to be able to say funk it without guilt, without anything. I've done the best I can, so now let's get down. And that's the way you apply the music. Like you look at old blues players, they walk in, what key is this in? One will look up, monkey. You know, it don't matter, just feel it, get on in and join. You know what I'm saying? And once you do that and let go, you ain't got to, you just do the best you can, usually end up in a pocket, in a groove. Without what keys and what arrangement. No, it ain't that deep. You know, let's just get down. Do you remember when you first heard the word used to des describe like a genre of music? Was it blues or was it jazz or something else? I, I don't think I heard it used as a genre of music. Yeah. You know, maybe James Brown might have said it early, you know, early on, but I think as a concept for genre, we, that's what we did. We went out to want to make it special. Yeah. It wasn't blues, jazz, or rock and roll. It was something that you heard in a lot of records. Jazz musicians used it. Blues musicians used it. But nobody said, we're going to play the funk. Mm. You know, like that. And I think that's what I intentionally wanted to say that because I saw how rock and roll had been changed so thoroughly from Chuck Berry, Little Richards, and, and even Muddy Waters to the black people didn't even know it was theirs. You know, and they were saying, that's white music. That's, you know, because White Stations was playing that version of rock and roll. And we just gave it away. It wasn't for Jimi Hendrix, we wouldn't have no claim to it. He actually single-handedly <laughs> took the shit back. <laughs> I mean, like, he really took it back. And we felt like... Well, we got another version of that same thing. So we did Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow. Again, we were tripping our ass off, turned the shit up loud as we could, had all the amps in the world in there, and just went off. Because I knew how to make straight records. I worked at Joe Bet, I worked at Motown, and theirs was completely clean and straight. We knew how to do that, but it was time to change. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Joe Bad and Motown and your early stuff because, I mean, I'm actually a really big fan of your early stuff as well because anybody who, who knew all the funk stuff, once you hear the, the straighter stuff, the soul stuff, the R&B stuff that you start out with, it's like, oh my God, this is the same thing, but it's, it's totally, they freaked it later, you know? It's loud. It we used loud. to call it, we used to call our version of funk Motown Loud. You know, I bet you it was just a straight Motown song played on Marshall amps. You know, I mean, people had all kind of terminologies for Temptations on Acid, James Brown on PCP, you know. That, that was the image we gave off was probably deeper than we really were because we were really lame at the concept of being 
you know, out there like that. But we was learning fast because we probably would have been convinced of our Motown ability to be a Motown act, which actually ended, not ended, but ended the way we knew Motown to be. The only thing that kept them alive was the Jackson 5, you know, and uh, Ashford and Simpson when they came along to stretch it out. But Motown, as we knew it, started to end in round 67, you know, and it was a different thing. They, they was doing a lady singing the blues by then. They was moving out of Detroit. So we felt like we could take over Detroit and do our version of the next generation of, you know, Motown stuff. You know, and um, those songs like Party Boys and all the doo-wop stuff we had done, we just knew we had to change. change we changed that doing, going into Motown because Motown actually changed the doo-wop stuff. That song right there that you just played, we was playing over here at the Brooklyn Paramount. You know, at, you know what was the name? Um, Mary Decay. Swingin' Soiree. Some of y'all may be that old. <laughs> Nobody. Well, that was the old... You used to bring all the shows to Brooklyn. What was uh, what was Plainfield, New Jersey like? Because that's kind of where you settled after leaving Newark. Well, I didn't actually leave Newark. I used to catch the 49 bus over to Plainfield every morning and work at my barbershop or we sang, and then I catch the last bus 11.30 back to Newark. So I never actually lived in Plainfield, but for years that was where my barbershop was. And that's where the musicians... Eddie Hazel, Billy Bass, Nelson, Bernie Worrell, Tal Fuld, Tal and Tiki, they all was from Plainfield. So that was the band was from Plainfield. It's kind of mind-blowing to me that all these musicians, all the ones you just mentioned, were all just kids hanging out in the barbershop. What, were they were they all aspiring to be musicians at that point, or were they just kids hanging out? This was actually before they even, you know, Billy was nine years old. I mean, actually, eight years old. He used to run around there smacking kids off their bike. He was just a little bad kid. And they hung around the barbershop, you know, cleaning up and trying to be hip, you know, and they would hear us singing and stuff in there. I don't think he got the idea of, of actually playing an instrument to just prior to us doing I Want to Testify. Billy was the first musician, and all he could do was strum it. He couldn't make, a, you know, no notes, but he could never tune it. So, but he had enough vibe that he could strum it, you know, for that verse, I just want to testify. But you love, and we sung that, like, probably 12 hours without stopping. And once I got it together, I knew it was a hit record then, I got on the plane, went back to Detroit, to Ron Banks from the Dramatics, Pat Lewis, you know, who's one of the Andantes who's on, on everybody's record from Isaac Hayes, Hot Butter and Soul, to all the Motown records, and all of our records. Them two, and we actually did the record, I just want to testify. Came back, got the, the, the fellas from Newark, Put on our, you know, got the rehearsals. The record came out in about a month. We didn't even know it was out. Smash hit. We were ready for it. And we went out on the road doing the doo-wop thing, you know, testifying. As soon as we got there, 
the Beatles had Sergeant Pepper, and that changed the world. So we immediately had to get rid of our suits. The hairdos weren't together anyway. We could never keep ties alike. And we was going to do what they was called hippies. Now, we know how to be poor. You know, that was easy, you know what I'm saying? We were basically trying to wear suits alike and have them tailor-made. We didn't want, but when it came, hippies became hip, you know, jeans with holes in them, patches saying, fuck you. And, oh, we know how to do that one. You know, we majored in making people cool. You know, we worked in the barbershop. We knew what cool was like. You know, we had the, the Sam Cooks, the Jackie Wilsons, everybody came to the shop to get their hair done. You know, so we knew what that was like. But this, you mean it's easier to do this? I took a holiday in towel, made a diaper out of it. I, I took the bed sheet, pulled ink or whatever on it, put it over my head, nothing under it. And we just began to turn the music up. And everybody was from basically was from the church in the band. So that feeling of soulfulness was really like Jimmy did with the version he had. It was seriously R&B. With us, it was seriously funky. And everybody was tripping like us. So we all probably was in some place. But we all agreed that we wanted to be there. And it was always positive. The ugliest person in the world was beautiful. That was the way you felt in those days. I mean, it changed. Like everything, like nothing stayed nice. So when it changed, somebody said, bye-bye American Pie. They meant that. It was over. And some of us didn't hear that. I didn't hear it for 35 years later. <laughs> you know? But I'm glad that I did hear it, and I'm here, and I don't regret shit. Did how, did the, um, how did the other parliaments um, sort of interact with the younger dudes in Funkadelic who became the band? Well, they were actually like their big brothers. They grew up with them, but they could have killed them, you know, because they was a pain in the ass. You know, they had basically been our little brothers, and in order for me to keep recording, I couldn't use the parliament name for a minute. I had to lean on them. I made them the stars, and we became their backup singers. I was still in charge of it, but you couldn't tell the older ones, you know, that they weren't still their boss. But you couldn't be their boss, because now their faces on the albums, ours wasn't. So they were like telling us, you're getting old. Go home, you know. So that would really bug, you know, the older guys. But it still was a family. Their parents had actually put us in charge of them when we went on the road. So they didn't hesitate to want to put a foot in their ass. <laughs> you know, you actually couldn't, but you sure got tested. How would you describe that Detroit environment? Um, the late 60s, early 70s Detroit, I mean... All these bands at the time, um, MC5, The Stooges, uh, Amboy Dukes, all these different groups, um, were you embraced by that community? We were all, all the ones you just named, Ted Nugent and Amboy Dukes, Iggy Pop and The Stooges, MC5, John Sinclair, 
Parliament Funkadelic. And weird as it sounds, Stevie Wonder, because he was just getting started. We were called the Bad Boys of Ann Arbor. Because John Sinclair got locked up for two joints, and I think this, they gave him some like 20 years. So we had to like picket and lobby for almost a year and a half to get him out of jail. So we used to have smoke ins in the park on, on the weekend in Ann Arbor. The whole school would just come out to the park and light up. There wasn't nothing you could do about it. We would play, all trying to get John Sinclair out of jail. And we did that for a period of time. And then John Lennon and Yoko came. And we finally got enough people together. But those, we would call, like I said, the bad boys of Ann Arbor, because MC5 almost got us locked up. You know, we used to call them the white niggas. Because they was real deep. You know, we was cool compared to them. But we always tell them, look, y'all go, go home. We do that shit with y'all. We going to jail. <laughs> we knew better than to try the shit they was doing. You know, sure enough, they we light up on the plane. And when the police come on the plane, when the plane landed, passed everybody, came all the way to the back where we were at. <laughs> and, and they getting off laughing. But like I said, we were had the same diversified management was all our agent. We all had the same agent. So what were the audiences like at your shows at that time? <laughs> Eight to 80 blind, crippled and crazy. <laughs> We've always had, you know, audience from young all the way, you know, to you know, older than us at that time. But with them, they had the hippies and we would draw the we call them pimp hoes and hippies. We draw them from Detroit, the people, you know, and they wouldn't mash together because in them days, everybody went to the shows anyway. You know, there wasn't no separation, not yet, not until like 69, 70. That's when the rock roll started going its own way, underground stations and rock stations and R&B stations. Before that, it was just pop music, anything that made it. but. The audience back then was, like I said, everything. It's still like it is with us today. It's like going to the circus. You know what I'm saying? You, when you go to the circus, all the generations, grandparents, parents, and the kids go. And thanks to hip-hop, that has happened for us. You know, the, the samples took us into the next generation of people, the Snoops and the Dre's and Tupac's and all that. Now... It's into the next gen, the Kendrick Lamar's and all that, and the electronic music. So funk has got a home anywhere it need to be because funk is the DNA for booty moving music. It, <laughs> right now, I'm, I just did a record with um, Soul Clap, Louis Vega, <laughs> you know. And it's my new album. I just got the version back with Kendrick Lamar on the Louis Vegas version of Brothers Be Your Like George. So we got the barrels of the guns aiming at everybody. You know, we ain't stopping. We want the planet. One planet under a groove. When, when younger musicians meet you, I mean... I would imagine they really geek out, right? I mean, like, like I can't, I mean, you've worked with Prince over the years. I mean, I can't imagine Prince being anything but super chill and cool, 
but I mean, was he like nerding out, like asking you all kinds of questions about about the day, about your musical process back in the day and stuff like that? He would. It would be. It was like holding class when I would go there because he's real soft spoken. But he would call me up in the middle of the night after the his show is over. Now you know I'm in the hotel doing wrong, <laughs> you know. But he he called me up and softly. Come on over, you know, I'm going, I want to talk. And I'm like, man, you know, wow. He said, you, you, you know, it's okay. You know, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be respectful. I'm not going, you know, I know he don't get out. So, like, I hate to keep getting up and going to the bathroom and all that. He was like, no, forget, just come on over. It ain't like I don't know thing. <laughs> so, I would go over there and if you're ever asking me about political or oh, conspiracy, but... <laughs> I was into that big time. I carried my beholder pale horse round under my arm. And I was like, I'm gone with that. You know, so yeah, it was like holding class. You know, and he would ask stuff like that. You know, but that's my man. <laughs> He's doing a lot of good now too, so. Um, when did the stage show really get expansive? I mean, we know Parliament Funkadelic, P-Funk All-Stars, as doing these marathon shows. When did that become the thing for you guys um, to do these really extended versions of songs, 25-minute songs, all that stuff? Oh, we started, as soon as we broke away from the Motown thing, we, made, we established that would free your mind. We were going to do whatever we wanted to do. We wasn't going to be in a bag. That's what that whole album was about. We wasn't trying to get a hit single. It was just, we're going to be where we don't have to compete with nobody. Because that was allowed in 67 on. You know, you could just go left, right, you can do what you want to do. And since we had already done straight songs with strings and horns, we knew how to do that. We got a hit record called Good Old Funky Music. It's a fluke. The company was going out of business when the record hit. So we realized this is it. So we came right back with another straight chant, music for my mother, because that's what it reminded me of. And we did the whole album in one day. Just went on the stage, I mean, went in the studio and started doing all the vamps that we did on stage that we knew worked, talked a lot of shit, you know, and I mean, we even got to listen to um, like, Free Your Mind, Your Ass and Father. I realized Martha and the Vandellas is on that record with us. <laughs> you know, it surprised me. I forgot that she was there because she was really? she was a friend of the group. And at that time, she, what, she, what y'all got me singing? You know, <laughs> free your mind, your ass with Paula, and that's all we did. And we was always joking, but you get serious when the groove hits you, so you do the joke serious. Free your mind, your ass with Paula. Yeah. She's the one. That's she's the crazy. one to say your ass. Wow. You mentioned Eddie Hazel, Maggot Brain, obviously, his masterpiece. What, what, did, what did you tell him? What was the instruction for Eddie before he went in and recorded that? Before I tell you what, I told Eddie, you said it's a masterpiece. You couldn't tell the engineers that when we did it. They didn't want their names on the record. Because <laughs> I'm over there fucking with the knobs, turning the drums off, turning the discs off, and right while the record is being... Mixed, so they didn't really want nothing to do with it. But 
Eddie had responded so well to what I had said. You know, just past, I know how to set him in a mood. And as you said, it passing jokingly. You know, it's, it's a, such a groovy, you know, soulful song. I told him, imagine Hazel, that's his mother. I said, imagine Hazel just died. He said, man, fuck you, man, that's fucked up. Yeah. And so I just walked on the way, but I know it's planted. When he started, the rest of the band is playing with him. You can hear the drums and bass in the beginning of it. But he was so far gone from that first note that to leave them in at that moment, it would have just been a nice instrumental. Taking them out of there and playing with the echoes about five different times and like five different echoes. What you hear on the record is basically the second echo. The source is very rarely used on the record. It's most of that, that's the echoes. And it's a lot of them because he had an echoplex on his guitar. Plus we did what you call slapback echo in the studio. So you got echoes slapback on another echo. So that record is all you get is the feeling of what he was playing. And it's like, it's, it's what I thought it was when I heard it. You know, it was the reason I did it like that. I was trying to be deep, but I knew that his feeling works. I don't care how, him or Bernie Worrell. Bernie Worrell's work in classical, knowing what he's doing, Eddie feels what he's doing, and you can count on it. You ain't got to know shit about it. Bootsy, rhythmically, he know what he's doing. I don't even ask what it is. Give me a track. I don't care what it is. I just got to find my part. You know, and I never, you can't figure that shit out. It ain't no, and I saw him actually trying to play Bernie's part. No, you can't play Bernie's part because now you got to think. And you don't think. Your fingers know where to go. You don't do that. That ain't got nothing to do with you. That's your relationship to your instrument. You know, it's hard to think that shit ahead of time when it's that good. You know, that's why I like hip hoppers when they came along with freestyling. That's a hell of a hell of a thought. You know, I mean, I love some of the people that did that real good. Yeah. I want to ask you about a couple of, the, of your collaborators, um, Gary Scheider, Starchild. G- Gary Scheider, along with Eddie, Billy, and all of them, they all went to church together. They were the second string. You know, after Eddie and Billy them, we got started up and got going. Motown wooed them out of the picture for a minute. Never forever, but just for a minute. And we took Gary, Boogie, and Tao. We took them to Toronto. Stored them up there. Because if you stayed in Plainfield, you was going to be a junkie. Straight up. I mean, everybody from 12 years to 70 at that particular time. So we took them up there because we were leaving and stashed them up there to 72. And when we did America East is Young, that's when Gary Scheider and uh, Boogie, that was the new version of Funkadelic came out. Wow. So then how did, how did Gary become the, the heir to the diaper? <laughs> I don't know. I think I've I stopped doing it I start, I would start going into the sheet. And so when he came with us, he had to do something. To, <laughs> I think him and Tao both used to do it. Tao was probably too normal doing it. You know, it looked like it fitted him too, too right. 
You know, so Gary could play it off pretty good because he was when he take it off, he's still a cool dude. Tyler looked like he should keep it on. <laughs> he was the original Iggy Pop. <laughs> Glenn Goins. Whoa. Glenn was unbelievable. I mean, to this day, there's nothing I've seen, you know, other than the gospel singers, the Rance Allens, and the... Glenn was, oof. <laughs> it's hard to put, this, you know, but you have to look at that video and see him call in a mothership. When he call in a mothership, you can bet you're going to visualize it. He going to make you see it. He going to make it appear. And he was like the youngest in the group at the time. But him, along with Eddie, Eddie's another one that sings, you know, but his feeling, he make himself cry when he sing, you know. But Glenn could just do anything he wanted to with his voice, you know. Could you imagine Glenn Goins and DJ Rogers singing background for Bobby Womack? When he came with us, that's when he just got fired from Bobby. Bobby told him and Dion, I mean, this is Bobby Womack's show. Because <laughs> Glenn and, and um, they was just singing so much in back of him, DJ Rogers. They were singing so good in back of him. Bobby said, no, nah, hell no. <laughs> Y'all get your own show. <laughs> and that was always a joke between them. He said, them niggas lie. They singing more than I'm singing. <laughs> Junie Morrison. Damn, I guess we had some bad motherfuckers in the group. Because well, he's later, you know, he was later, but. Yeah, but he, woo. Matter of fact, I just said something to think to Vivian just now. We was going to hire him to come and rehearse us for the new mothership we're getting ready to put together now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're getting ready to do that. We're getting ready to do some serious stuff. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, but Junie, from, you know, the Ohio players, he the one started them off in that direction. But he came with us. One Nation on the Groove was the first record he did with us. Yeah. And, the, and the second one, he came to me. I used to sing a song, you know, she did freak. Never missing a beat. I used to hum it to myself when I was fishing. And he said, hey, man, why don't you record that, man? I said, I said, you know, part of it is in three-fourths. You know, you can't dance. You know, round and round the floor, we dancing, I love. You know, I, I was just humming it. He said, oh, he can be arranged, man. He can be arranged. A couple of days later, he come into the studio. He said, you know how you, you know, just do it the way you regularly do it. Did, 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 freak. And I sung it just like I sang it ordinarily. And didn't have to change it. The round and round of worked. And when he did, when that worked, we must have had 50 people in there. Everybody's on that record. But it's so tight that you still sound like one or two people. You know, that's one of the best records. Junie, he's unbelievable. Junie said that um, Bootsy actually played the drums on Knee, Knee Deep. He said he played the drums on One Nation Under a Groove. Who said that? Junie said that. The bo who played it? That Bootsy played the drums on Knee Deep and One Nation Under a Groove. 
Yeah. Is, that, is that possible? I mean, it's possible. Yeah. That's possible. I, I ain't we shit. If, if they sound, for if they sound confident like that, then fuck it. I, I ain't, if, if I was successful at that time, I was fucked up. <laughs> you know, so it, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know everything that went down there. That's bullshit. It's much easier to say, yeah, that's what happened. It's fair, fair enough. <laughs> so you mentioned the mothership. Now, what, actually, what's the status of the mothership right now? Where is the mothership? The Smithsonian. Is it? They're building a new wing of the Smithsonian, the African-American section of the Smithsonian. And um, they got the Tuskegee Airmen's plane, um, some Oprah stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, other, you know. All the important stuff. Of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the mothership is going to be in the lobby of the new building. They've gotten it already. I saw it online where they was actually polishing it up. The end of the year, Beginning of next year, you you gonna bring it back? Oh, but that no, that they gonna start showing that we getting a brand new one. Am I right? Oh, we we got that in the works right now. It's gonna be got a good deal on a new mothership. Oh, it's gonna be a new mothership, a tour with around the world, the one that everybody's been waiting on. How crazy was it? Like, what was the reaction from the from the? From Casablanca, I guess, at the time when you said, hey, um, we need some money to, to build this mothership. Um, I mean, what was, what was well, we had the hit, process of actually getting that done? We had a hit record at the time. The record mothership was already a hit. So now I know you don't get no back end out of no record deal. All you get, you're going to get it up front and don't even wait. So I'm like, don't worry about the royalties. You know, Neil is a promotion man. He worked at Buddha. He was the king of bubblegum. So he knew what I said, saying when I say, get this spaceship for me. You ain't got to give me those royalties that you ain't going to give me anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's much easier in his mind to see paying for a spaceship that's going to help promote the record than this for him to give me the money. But I know once I get the spaceship, not only Parliament going to be on there, but Funkadelic going to be on there. And they're on Warners. Boots are going to be on there. He on Warners. Brides is on Atlantic. Parlette, no, we take them to Casablanca too. So Neil got two acts out of it. But he didn't care because the royalties, he got me a loan from the bank. He didn't even give me the royalties. He got me a loan from the bank and the royalties from the company paid the bank back. So... It wasn't no thing for him to say yes to that. He knew he was a win-win situation. He knew that with a spaceship, that was going to promote some records. Here's a man that used to run around New York at Buddha in July with gorilla suits on, going to the radio station with the record in their hand to get it played. So he'd do anything to get a record played. So he knew what promotion was. And I did too, because I'd done that. Quite a bit in Detroit, you know, I know how to do that. So when I said spaceship, he was down with it. The only thing he wanted to do is his wife, he hadn't married her yet, but Joyce wanted to name it Landon in the Ghetto. I said, hell no. 
no, no. This got to be a world thing. It's got to come to the plate and save everybody. I mean, you know, no, no. That's too small. I know R&B budgets are small. If you start talking about just the ghetto, it's going to be a small budget. <laughs> you know, they're not going to spend no money on no R&B product for, just for the ghetto. You know, once it became a pop record, which is today, tear the roof off the sucker, it's still that record. And you just mentioned the different acts that were on different labels. How did that come about? Was that just bidding wars for different groups? Well, or, or, or what was the situation with that? Was it premeditated well, that way? Anytime a group get a hit record, the vultures be out there picking at the carcass of everybody in the band, trying to get find out who's doing what and try to take them. I knew that. So when we got the hit record, I did it before they got to us. Oh, don't worry, you can have Eddie. You know, he's, we got him on tour. We can break the record for you. So, you know, Funkadelic was already on Warners. So, hey, it, take Eddie, too. Um, Farlett is on, on Casablanca. He wanted a girl group. I took him to Brides first. He thought that was too dark, Brides of Funkenstein. Yeah. But I did the record already because I did Wait, so I, we did it for Julia Phillips. We did Close Encounters. She wanted a soundtrack for the Close Encounters. So that's what War Tushan on the Brides of Funkenstein album. That album was done for her. But she wanted to buy it cheap, so I sold it to Atlantic. It, it happened accidentally, but I just did it preempted before people started coming and picking the group apart. They still did it, got the rest of them later on. Yeah. You know, you start seeing mutiny on the mothership. You know, <laughs> you know um, had me walking the plank. <laughs> you know, but one thing about the funk, it always come back together. You know, people leave, it always. It always, they, they ain't nowhere else to go. And the funk is going to be here. You know, we'll, I'll help you. We'll help you. You got a bit, I told Junie, he was giving people contracts. So I said, well, my contract. If it's a better deal than we got, I'm going to. And I don't need to be the boss. That ain't no fun. You know, so we was with each other no matter what happens. You know, and sometimes they ain't cool, but you still have to do it. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. It's like, I mean, we're talking dozens and dozens of people. Um, on the About audience. 70. Yeah, 70 people. Um, what would your advice be to somebody in a group, maybe a, small, a slightly smaller group, <laughs> sort of <laughs> politically keep things together? Because, I mean, you know, for a while people, I mean, for a band with all these different, sections and stuff like that. That's, I mean, that's quite a bit. You look at, Wu-Tang did the same thing. They did the same thing. Rizzard had the Wu-Tang deal, then each one of them had deals. It's the same thing. The same thing, but if you're going to do that, there is no formula to making that work. Because everybody's their own person. Everybody want to do their thing at, at their pace when they want to do it. So the best you can do is just do what y'all do and funk it, you know? And, you know, stay with each other even if you're apart. You know, allow yourself to still work together even if you can't stand each other, you know? And that pretty much works because that's, you know, the music deserved to be out there, 
You know, and it's going to be, you might have to wait till you get broke, you know, to come back and feel something and do it. But my thing is, show me a studio. I don't care who you is. I ain't got nothing else to do most of the time. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm, and I like it like that. It ain't trying to be no goody-goody. Sometimes you look and put your foot in somebody's ass, but they ain't getting no music made. I mean, I know you've, you've worked with RZA at different points. Uh, did you guys ever talk about, like, uh, RZA? Uh, oh yeah, we did some. Matter of fact, we did something that's just getting ready to come out now. Him and um, uh, Shava, System of a Down. Okay. We did a thing that, matter of fact, they just asked for paperwork the other day. Yeah, yeah. So, that's pretty interesting too. <laughs> so did he pick your brain about that whole thing as well? Just like all the different labels and and the different offshoots of the groups. I mean, because that's basically your saying exactly. He already he, he's, he did a good job himself. He didn't. I'm ready to pick his brain. Just how he doing in this day and time, you know. But it's pretty. I think it was pretty well understood that when you get. Especially something like hip hop, everybody's a different personality anyway. So the best way to keep that is just get a different deal, like jazz musicians used to do it. You know, Miles have a um, certain set of people on his Herb Hancock and all them. So you get hit record, and next time Herb Hancock have a deal, Miles play on it. It's always accepted like that in jazz. So it's actually the same thing as jazz, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned just maggot brain and really going wild in the studio, using the studio as an instrument, I guess, to some degree. What, um, what other mistakes, things that maybe we take for granted from the records from listening to them? Are there things that you remember that sound the way they sound on these songs because something went wrong or there was an accident or something? Well, like a, lot of, a lot of is parts get missing get erased, wrong versions get put out. You know, you got all of that and there's, and there's so much with our stuff that you didn't notice it till the record was out. Or sometimes they actually fool you. You know, somebody do a mix and they want their mix on the record. At the last minute, they change it. It's in the table. <laughs> that fucks you up too. But sometimes you don't even notice it for years because, oh, you, I sound good, I sound good. Then you say, wait a minute. You get a cassette. This was the one that I told him to put out. And like, hey, girl. <laughs> Kendra Foster, y'all over there with D'Angelo. Hey, I see. I saw Charlie already. <laughs> so clap, yeah. Where do you think you got your knack for wordplay? Because that's really one of your trademarks. Say that again. Your knack for wordplay. I mean, so many different catchphrases, turns of phrase that have you've well, made famous over the years. Well, style-wise, I'm biting off of Smokey Robinson. He was the king of puns. He could just flip things around. You know, a lot of them was school book, little school story that he would flip. Two lovers and both of them are you. You know, I learned that from him. So by the time we started doing Funkadelic, I, I was doing things absurdly. You know, not just simple wordplay, but ridiculously wordplay. Using words that sounded like homonyms, use them as though they were the same word. You know, just... 
flipping any kind of way, sometimes it gets so stupid that we we do it to the point of, of laughter. You know, the band, you get a concept, throw it up in the air, and there's people just throw puns at it. And um, ain't that punny. You know, it gets stupid, but you're high enough, it sounds good. <laughs> and a lot of that actually worked, because like, um, if you will suck my soul, I would lick your funky emotion. I had to be out of my mind at that time, <laughs> you know, you know. But it just probably flipped off trying to be deep, you know, while I was already out there. It's it's kind of deep though. I mean, it you is. Know, and well, when I heard it later on, and people started making their interpretation of what it meant, of course I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right, shit. You know, if, if I can, I'm gonna be deep. So, so there's no, there no deeper meaning behind some of these, the, the cheap? Not for the most part. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give you all the secrets now. Can't tell you which ones was real and which ones ain't. Really, even what about, hey, lady, won't you be my dog and I'll be your tree and you can pee on me? Is, that, is there a deeper <laughs> meaning to that? I got away with that one. Check this. I got away with that one for years. I would write that on my autograph to girls, and for, you know, and everything. And then my granddaughter, she's probably six, five or six, said, granddad, girl dogs don't pee on trees. And I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> now I can't, I can't say it with any kind of conviction. <laughs> you know, you know, it, 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 you know, wow, I've been getting away with it that long. You know, that's on Dope Dogs. It's on Dope Dogs. Oh, yeah, you know I had to bite on my loan lines. You know? And that's my granddaughter right there, Tanisha. They were six years old. <laughs> they, was, they were six years old when I got them to do that on Dope Dogs records. Now they're on the, in the group on the new record. And they got their own group. <laughs> I hear my other daughter somewhere out there. I can't say what that she is. <laughs> That's what, they're all in the band right now. Sly Stone. Somebody my, that inspired I, you, obviously, and also became a friend. That's my motherfucker. <laughs> He's my motherfucker for real. You know what I'm saying? That's my nigga there. Sly Stone is that motherfucker, y'all. I don't give a fuck what he, he got it like that. That motherfucker can, can play this shit, write this shit, and he ain't got to let nobody hear it. I mean, it's crazy to me, but when he finally pull it out, he'd be like, what the fuck are you sitting on this for? It ain't right. <laughs> the fuck, you ain't bought no record in 40 years. How would you know what's right? You got to just let it come out, get rid of it. So that he actually gave me some songs to put on this last album that I don't think nobody could get. What's, what's your most memorable experience hanging out with Sly Stone? Okay. We can't do that no more. <laughs> the Statue of Limitation ain't up yet. <laughs> I can give, nah, we don't, everybody done heard that shit. <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's cool. <laughs> he's cool. 
the last funny story is probably Overton over there who drew all the Parliament albums. You know, Overton Lord. He he and myself and somebody, I forget who else it was, we painted Sly Motorhome that he lived in. It, as soon as he painted, we worked on it. It was beautiful. I mean, it's a masterpiece. The Three days later, he hocked it. <laughs> but it's right around the corner from him. We can get it any time we want, he said. <laughs> the truth is, somebody bought him a new one. <laughs> and he didn't realize, hey, damn, I could at least sold that. <laughs> but he's like, these cool people. <laughs> he didn't hock it for drugs, y'all. It wasn't for drugs. <laughs> he just got a new one. Well, I mean, you know, you, you talk very frankly about addiction, about drugs in your book. Oh, shit, I was fucked up, shit. I mean, ain't no sense. Everybody know that. We got busted yeah. enough, yeah. you know, but when I got ready to, to change, I did that. I changed. <laughs> you know? I got... I got married. That's my wife sitting over there, Carla. <laughs> I made an album with 33 songs on it. I did. I did a book on my life, and I'm just getting started. I have a, a lot of time on my hands nowadays. <laughs> you know, because believe me, doing that took up a lot of time. You know, doing nothing. Just sitting around getting high, you spend a lot of money and a lot of time. I thought, damn, if I'd spend this kind of time and money on anything, I should really make money. You know, and that's what I did. I started to work on the book, on the album, because it had to make a statement. It had to be you know, like I said, brothers be your like George. Ain't that funky kind of hard on you? I ain't crying. I'm going to be hard when I get through. But I needed some kind of, something to piss me off to make me go there. And since I can't get my drugs, I'm pissed off. <laughs> you know, I got to get a new thing to get me interested in doing and take up that time. I mean, no, I don't even want to do that, but I want to make sure that it's at least as interesting just fucking doing drugs, you know. So I think what I'm doing now is very interesting. I'm already doing a new Parliament album. So what's a, what's a typical day like for you with this clean lifestyle? Like, I mean, do you meditate? Do you, what sort of things? No, seriously, what sort of things do you do? It's corny as hell. <laughs> Go out and feed the birds and shit. I watch the squirrels in the backyard, you know, but it's cool, you know, I've always done that, but now I'm aware of it. <laughs> before, before it just, you know, just, yeah, something to do. But damn, nigga, you sit up here looking at squirrels and shit. But and then to the studio, you know, and I get with a bunch of kids that's around the same as it was in the barbershop. We do tracks, they call it making beats. We call it doing arrangements. So we do both of it. Arrange some of the beats. <laughs> you know, put guitars over some of the tracks that they come up with. 
You know, I'm down for Pro Tool, but I got to get some noise on that shit live. I got to get some analog in there somewhere, you know. So we combine all of it. You know, I let them influence me and I influence them in this back and forth. And like I said, it keeps you on a fresh path coming up with new shit. But I still call, I call Fred Wesley and Pee Wee Ellis to come down there. And it's going to sound weird for a lot of people because they're playing over a lot of these loops and tracks that the kids make. But you got that serious James Round horn on there. But it's brand new. Ain't nothing to compare it to. And it's funky, so ain't going to be too much problem. At the time, when James Brown, all these groups were going at it, did you look at it as competitive? I mean, Fred and those guys eventually joined you guys. Bootsy was with James. He left James, eventually ended up with you guys. You know, we basically, we knew James was the baddest thing. You know, we've seen that at the Apollo years before. But being at Motown, you thought of, that, like I thought of my mother's music. He's got a groove and it's cool, but he ain't writing lyrics. That's the way we thought of it. You know, we thought we was something special. You know, the stories and things that Motown wrote, that was the shit. But when it came time to sample that shit, the first thing they sampled was, mm, good God, that, let me know, he must have been saying something. <laughs> it had to be a lot of message in that, in that tone that, you know, that let me know. I had to go back and reevaluate what we thought about James. We just thought he could dance at a tight band. But ain't shit after that. Once you got that, ain't too much more to want. You know, I didn't put a little bit of story in there if you can. So we got out the boots in them. We took what he was doing, put a little story in there, a little silliness, you know, some solos other than horns, and um, we had what we call P-Funk. But we didn't have enough sense to realize that he was, Papa got a brand new bag, he meant that shit. And it ain't nothing like that yet. You know, no, ain't nothing, it's gonna be a while before that shit happens. You know? Do you remember the first time you realized that you had been sampled? De La Soho came up and gave us $100,000. <laughs> swear to God, we didn't even know what to call it. They weren't saying samples or what. They didn't know. I didn't know if it was for the, the song or the record. It was actually for the record, but we didn't know we owned it at the time. Nobody told us. The court had already given to us. We didn't know for a long time, but we weren't paying attention. But they gave us $100,000. They should have put us on notice, you know, but we didn't run spending $100,000, you know. It took us a long time to figure this shit out. Yeah, but after that, every time you turn around, there was a sample. You know, I had seen it in the clubs, you know, where they started off, block them, block them, and go to another record. That was, that was, okay, that's hip segue, that's hip way to keep people on the dance floor. But to hear it on a record, it's like, what do you call this? Then I started hearing Rakim do um, shit goddamn my Alice in my fantasies, one of those, like, that, it speeded up a little bit, but I know that line. Well, public enemy, no head, no public enemy, pass, yeah, no head, no back. Damn, you got your, yeah, no head, no backstage pass. That's right. They use those samples, those licks, 
And I, I recognize that. You know, to me, I'm flattered. I'm glad that they're doing it because the only time you hear your shit anyway is going to be on KTL packages on TV. So, <laughs> so with 10 other records, so you don't get shit from that. So at least if they're sampling it, I'm going to figure a way to get in this. You know, I'm not going to go out here hating and screaming because there's something in here for me. And the thing was, just be down with them. And hang with them until you figure out what it is you're supposed to get. Because they ain't giving it to you either. They ain't, and not talking about the artists. It's basically the companies. They're going to get both of us. It took 20 years for us to figure out that there was even a concept of paying for the album, for the record. You know you get something for the songwriting. But they kept it here so thoroughly that you're supposed to get paid for them using your master. We didn't know that. We just not finding that out in this causing me a fortune right now to have found that out. Because now I'm dedicated to fighting that as much as I am to making music. I'm dedicated to getting copyrights on the up and up. And the way it's done now is cor corruption. I mean, at a high level, it's gonna take the federal government to investigate this, you know, the same way they did banks. Because copyrights are that powerful now. You can use them in bundles to get millions of dollar loans, and that's what they're doing with copyrights. And it's infected the copyright office. It's infected all of the build, all of the you know BMIs and ASCAPs and everything. It's affected everybody to the point that you get a blurred line. You know, and make it seem like they had that baseline copywritten. Which Motown, I doubt it, I could be wrong. We had something we call lead sheets, which meant you had the lead melody on the paper, on the sheet of music. Not the arrangement, not the drums, the bass, the guitar. That would have cost a fortune to do that to every rock and roll or blues or R&B song you did. Companies wouldn't spend that kind of money, so they did a lead sheet with the lead voice. If that bass line is on that lead sheet, then they, then they bit off something that was copywritten. But I don't think it was. Matter of fact, they had my song in the same suit. They had one of my songs, Sexy Ways, and they was getting ready. My wife telling me don't say this, but I'm saying it. <laughs> you know, they, they had one of my songs in their Sexy Ways, the same firm was suing on behalf of me. I went on um, TMZ and told them, I don't hear my song in there. Because they was bullshitting. They would have used that to get twice as much as they got from him. They would have got it from for, for Marvin Gaye, and they would have gotten it from me. No, I wasn't going to stand by, and, and, you know, not just because I wasn't getting paid out of it. I wouldn't have done that anyway, because that's not the way. You know, what's going to happen with reggae or go-go, which every beat is basically the same. You know, you can't. So if, if you know, if they're going to say the beat is copyrightable, you know, you're going to just go in the slope. Yeah. 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 So they really blurred the line for real. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Rakim a, a few moments ago. That's my other motherfuckers. <laughs> him, excuse me, cutting y'all, but when it comes to hip hop, that's the one that, okay. Okay, he is that motherfucker. You know, and there's been a lot 
of other ones, you know, and like my other mom is Eminem. I watched him as a baby. I watched him grow up as a baby, and he believed me. You don't want to tangle with you. You don't want him talking about you under no circumstances. He ain't the one you want to have that discussion with. But far as the ability to be what hip hop supposed to be, cool, flowing, rock him is all of that. I mean, you don't have to dance. You don't have to do shit, but just talk. That shit hurts. You, know, you don't want to follow him. You know, follow the leader. You don't want him to be the one you have to follow. I mean, I think it's, it's awesome. It's remarkable that you have this appreciation for the artistry of hip-hop because, I mean, but I was, I mean, it's in your book, if anybody's read the book, and if you haven't yet, you should, but it's, you say basically that you felt you hadn't accomplished anything. Every time I hear somebody with that, with that intensity of talent, I feel like I want to start all over again. Like I ain't done shit. When you hear that, it's like, whoa, I wish I'd have said that. You know, and there's, you know, you, I can't even listen to Eminem because he don't ever stop. He do it all the time. You know, so you have to gear yourself up to be able to say, shit. I wish I had done that. I, I, I haven't done shit. Yeah. You know, and even Kendrick Lamar, when I hear that record, I have to keep listening to it and I like it because I just feel what he's doing. But there's something that I got to learn what the fuck it is that he's doing. Because everybody likes it like that. And most of the people don't know what the fuck he's talking about. You just know he's saying key metaphors that feels good. Because if you start trying to get him to explain it, it's going to be probably let down. You know, because you know I'm sure that he felt it and not necessarily thought about it intellectually what the fuck this means, because words mean so many different things to people. It's hard for us to come to a consensus on what a word means. So you just basically have to, do you feel me? And that's where, that's where I'm at with that. Do you have a, um, an album, a, a recording, a song that you've written that you feel is your greatest accomplishment? Is there a top, is there a top few? Is there like, Oh, you mean in uh, the ones we did? The, yeah, from yeah. your career. Oh, Atomic Dog, Knee Deep. Atomic, Atomic Dog, Knee Deep, and One Nation. Those three, you know, because they're commercial and they're really good artsy-fartsy records too. <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot of the other ones is you know, what we call our father. You just put him up, put it, you know, like, we want the funk. I really tell you, I was biting off David Bowie. Yeah. Fame. Oh, fame. You know, I mean, if it's right, then I would be sued like hell if there was Bridgeport. Would, if they own fame, I'd be in trouble because the beat and the feel is there's nothing. I didn't copy the melody, which is the sin. You copy seven notes of the melody, that's what copyright law is. But the feel is on the one, like Jane Brown, like, I just didn't you know, he just didn't finish it. I just added the silent parts that he didn't say, but it's the same feel. Mm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it was. Oh, he definitely got funk. If you don't know that, he definitely got funk. You do not be starters and not be funky. You know, they may not be funky of your era, but it's definitely not mainstream. But, okay, why? Well, I can imagine Doobie in my funk. I was just bullshitting when I said it. <laughs> okay, okay. You kind of dissed the Doobie Brothers there, though. <laughs> Doobie Brothers. Um, you've said that you didn't want to be pegged as a, as a political artist, yet your music really is, I think, some of the greatest music is about the human condition. Um, it's a war that is about political issues or topical issues. There's anti-war songs. Well, there's, there's songs about brotherhood. There's songs about um, all sorts of things. Well, I bring up the topics for people to think about. I don't try to give no answers. I just, you know, food for thought. You know, I just say things because I know they should make you think, or you're going to think about what the fuck is he talking about, or why did he say that. I bring up things that a lot of people won't say or make statements like, America eats its young. You couldn't say that nowadays. It'd be all over your ass you try to say that nowadays. But at that moment, I could say those things because that needed to be said from somewhere in my head because that's what I was hearing from all the other artists and the kids that was around us. That's the kind of thoughts that they was provoking in me. So at any given time, I probably was political. Just the group, the look at the group was political. It was one thing to have Jimi Hendrix up there by himself with two white boys doing that. But they have 10 of us up there doing that, loud as we were doing it. That's a whole other thing for everybody to see. We were too black for white folks, and we were too white for black folks. But the people that liked us kept multiplying day after day after day. And when we flipped it into Chocolate City, it was hip to be black. You know, even with white folks, Vanilla Soberg, it was hip to be black. That means... Jane Brown said black and I'm proud. But it became hip. We saw it coming. You know, we did One Nation Under Group. We we had the first black mayor in Newark. So I know eventually there's going to be a black president. You know, so we rode that all the way to the outer space. You saw black on the spaceships in Megalene and May. You know, my business hat. You know, you know Aurora, Uru. Uru on Star Trek was the only black you seen in outer space. She needed company. <laughs> but I think that's why this, this music is timeless, because it was so ahead of its time at the time when it was released. It was prophetic in so many different ways. I mean, Chocolate City, obviously, was very prophetic. Um, Eulogy and Light... Addressing greed, you know, our father that are on Wall Street, you know, all of these all things. Uh, come in out of the rain about let's leave this war, march to the witch's castle. Well, that's where I started believing my own bullshit. <laughs> when I started hearing them like that, you know, all those things that we were saying in the frame of mind we were saying them in, and they come to pass. Damn, it do look like I know some shit, you know. But I ain't claiming that shit. That's a surprise, as much a surprise to me as it is to anybody else. You know, I felt a flow, and it must be what they call a, a stream of consciousness. It just come through you. And you open your mouth and let it come out, and that's funk. You know, don't edit it. And, and you trust yourself, 
and then I have to figure out what I say to make some out of it later. Sometimes I do songs and do the whole song, just talk a whole bunch, of, and then come back out and take out what don't make sense, say what I almost said, what I meant, when I could just about ready to say, it, didn't have it right, go back and put it right, do that a lot. But um, I pretty much trust you know, myself on records just to be able to mess up. You got to be able to mess up to come up with something new. And I don't mind fucking up. <laughs> you know, I can do that. And the rest of the musicians be like, you know, that's the wrong note. But I don't know till I thought I did it. I ain't trying to know. I'm just letting shit come out. And when it come out, if I don't get it quite right, I can go back there, correct me. I got enough good singers in the band who, who come in. No, he really. I got one called Peanut. He's been with us forever. Peanut's in where? <laughs> He's like, well, if you start on this note and you're in in here, you really meant to do bing, bang, 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 that flows right. But if you change this first note, it ain't going to end right there. He can analyze it like that. So I, what am I trying to do, Peanut? Because I keep doing it. He's like, well, you did it three or four times. Like, and, and, so you evidently meant to go from here and here, and that, that'll make you land right there. You know, other than that, he ain't going to say shit till you ask him something. You know, so that's my mom. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. I don't know what else to say except <laughs> thank you to Mr. George Clinton. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.